Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Survival by Degrees, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the climate crisis and what tackling it really entails. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Andreas Hosley. He's an attorney, a PhD candidate at the University of Zurich, and a visiting researcher at the University of Copenhagen. His article is Milieu Defensive versus Shell, a tipping point in climate change litigation against corporations. Andreas, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So first of all, what was this ruling and why was it so unprecedented? Right, yeah. So what was this ruling? In, in the end of May 21, the District Court of The Hague in the Netherlands issued a decision ordering Royal Dutch Shell, that is to say the, the parent company of the, the Shell Group, the top holding company, to reduce the CO2 emissions of the entire Shell Group uh, very drastically by 45% compared to 2019 levels uh, until 2030. So that means that one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, and probably the largest or one of the largest in Europe, according to this uh, judgment of first instance, uh, needs to revamp its entire business strategy. And that is particularly important because the the order concerns the entire scope of emissions that are attributed to that company, meaning uh, direct and indirect emissions. And that includes emissions uh, down the entire supply chain and also by end users of fossil fuel products sold by Shell. And why was it unprecedented? Well, it was the first time Uh, worldwide that a court ordered a company to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. So that is why. And the Shell case really stands out from from other lawsuits against private companies because the the plaintiff's claim really implies that uh, Shell must adapt its global operations very drastically to bring them into alignment with Uh, the global consensus that emissions must be reduced substantially and very swiftly in order for the world to have a fair chance of achieving the Paris Agreement's temperature-limiting goals. So that is in a nutshell why. And as you mentioned, Shell is one of the largest energy companies in the world. So how did the court determine the scope of Shell's responsibility for emissions, not just in the Netherlands, but globally as well? Yes, that is a very important point. You could say, oh, that is a Dutch company, which technically speaking, is it is not. It is a, um, a mixed company. Um, not only incorporated in the Netherlands, but that is a bit of a legal tech technicality. Uh, but to, to reply to your question, it's in the first place important to understand what the legal basis for the court was for this, for this judgment. Uh, and that was a provision in the Dutch civil code under which liability 
meaning financial liability, may arise where a standard of care described as proper social conduct, so in more in other terms, what society expects you to do. So where that social uh, standard, if you will, is breached, you are liable. And that may be a person, a natural person or a company or a state. So a very, very basic provision. And interpreting that standard of care, the court took into account a number of factors. And these are relevant to understand why the order extends um, to the group's entire emissions, meaning all over the world. I just want to highlight probably a few of those, but most importantly, the court took into consideration that, first of all, Shell's emissions exceed those of entire states. So if you look at how many, how much CO2 all the Shell companies together emit, that would be more than the entire uh, country of the Netherlands. Uh, secondly, Shell is, as mentioned in the beginning, the top holding company of the entire group with about with more than 1,000 companies worldwide. And as such, the, the top holding company has a policy setting position that can uh, determine the strategy of the entire group and also the energy package offered by the group. So they determine Shall we invest in oil or gas or renewables? And therefore, the court said, then uh, you, parent company, have the same responsibility for those emissions emitted by the whole group worldwide as for your own activities, if you would only look at uh, the legal parent company. What's the significance of the Paris Agreement when it comes to private actors? You mentioned that Shell's emissions exceed those of entire states. So this becomes a really interesting case then because it's a private actor that is larger than a state in a sense. Yes, absolutely. That's probably the key question here. And uh, it really shows that this judgment brings up very, very basic questions of what we call in our academic circles global climate governance. So for the last 30 years or so, the narrative was, okay, climate change is an issue for the global community. Who is the global community? States, nation states. And in the international law, and international law and climate change is a part of that international law, who are the actors there? Okay, nation states, countries, as opposed to uh, corporations, companies. But uh, as globalization has shown, these companies have become very large and global. So they have become multinational companies and they have really, their activities cannot really be covered by the international law and also not by domestic law because they're just transnational companies. So that is a problem we don't only have in climate change, but also in other areas. But coming back to the Paris Agreement, the standard reply to, to your question would be, oh, the Paris Agreement is an agreement between nation states. Therefore, it doesn't apply to private actors because they are not what we call subjects of international law. However, a few academics, including myself, 
would highlight that there are a few, there is a big however to that standard reply. And that is mostly, and here it gets a bit technical, but I try to explain it in a way the listeners can understand. I would argue and others argue that the Paris Agreement is at least indirectly uh, relevant to private actors. And the Shell case is a perfect example for that. So, but what do I mean with indirectly? Um, if you look at domestic laws, so here in this case, the civil law code in the Netherlands, you will find provisions in many countries, you will find provisions or concepts that are what we call openly framed, meaning that they don't prescribe or prohibit a certain or very specific standard or behavior, as is uh, typical in law, but they are open to interpretation. So in this case, this openly framed standard of what society expects you to do. And through this mechanism, the argument goes, these standards can be interpreted in light of international climate change law or also climate science. So here is where the Paris Agreement comes into play because it sets a global benchmark of limiting global temperature increase at uh, well below two degrees Celsius or preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And you could, the argument is, okay, you take that benchmark from international law, which doesn't apply directly to a company, but you use it to interpret um, standards of care that are open to interpretation under national law. And that's precisely what happened in this instance. And it was the first time, to my knowledge, worldwide that this was successful. So I guess to to sort of wrap that up, basically what you're saying is you can use domestic law in an international law space. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, or the other way around. I mean, the reality still is today that uh, at the end of the day, we don't really have international courts where you can bring companies or where you can sue companies. So you'd have to go to a national court, um, essentially. And there the question is, how do you, or which sources of law do you use? And then you would find that international law is not directly applicable. But maybe, as I tried to explain before, it can be used so as a means to interpret domestic law. So it's probably a bit of a complicated mechanism to understand. But you kind of take international law and uh, try to translate it to domestic laws because of how the, the court systems work. You have to do that. Whereas you cannot take domestic laws and kind of implemented at an international level. So that's really fascinating. I know that this is a fairly recent case. Um, has use been applied to other cases outside the world of climate change? Um, you know, basically, as you said, using this domestic law um, and applying it um, to international courts, essentially. Uh, yeah, one case uh, that 
You were asking for cases outside of climate change law. Not very familiar, but there is another case in climate change law also in the Netherlands, but against a state, against the state of Netherlands, which was the Urhinder case. And there, a few years earlier, the state of the Netherlands was ordered um, by the Dutch courts to reduce its emissions in line with uh, international climate change law, applying exactly the same mechanism as in this shell case. Uh, the shell case being different because it's against a company, not against the state. Um, but if you look at the world, you would for sure find many uh, examples where a domestic court would use uh, international norms as a means to interpret a standard under, under domestic law that could maybe be in the, uh, in the cyber area as well, where, where you have a, a similar problem of a global problem, in this case, internet, but you're not able to use, impose the, or use those laws directly for companies that are still, technically speaking, companies established under the law of a specific country. Um, so that goes, this concept is not at all climate change specific, but it, it's uh, applicable to many other areas of law. Yeah, my thought was this could be a really big deal for companies like Facebook, for example, when you talk about companies that operate like nations or have more power than entire nations, it would seem like tech is uh, kind of the new frontier for that. Yes, absolutely. A bit of a thought on that. The, I mean, the Dutch courts have now repeatedly shown that they are open to ruling unprecedented um, decisions. It is not sure or experience shows that, for instance, in the US, this case would be much, much harder to win. And also, we should always bear in mind that this is just a court of first instance uh, ruling, which Shell has uh, already appealed. So we'll have to see uh, what the implications are. But uh, of course, it's, it's very interesting to see what will happen. So speaking of those implications, what I find really fascinating uh, when we're talking about climate change policy and talking about international law, the Paris Agreement, is how enforceable um, are these laws or are these court cases? Uh, so what reductions was Shell supposed to make as a result of this case and how enforceable are they? Yes, that's obviously a very important question. Uh, as a lawyer, w winning a case is one thing, hard enough, one thing, um, but don't celebrate too early. You need to also enforce uh, the court order and it's just as important, otherwise it's of no use. And so in this case, as mentioned, Shell was ordered to reduce its CO2 emissions by 45% until 2030. Uh, notably, it did not, uh, that order did not include other important greenhouse gases, in particular methane, be, uh, probably because methane is not reported by companies. That maybe sound uh, like a detail, but methane is a very important greenhouse gas. Uh, it just uh, gets much less press than CO2, but it's important to, to mention that in this context. 
so what reductions was Shell supposed to make? Uh, as I said, the order encompasses all scopes, one, two, three emissions, meaning all direct and indirect emissions. But the court did not prescribe how the company must do that. They just set the goal, but it's up to Shell how to meet that obligation, noting uh, that it's the, the whole matter is on appeal. But in principle, uh, the court also said that its order is provisional, provisionally enforceable, meaning that Shell has to uh, implement it immediately. But one exception is that the court made a distinction in relation to the so-called scope three, meaning indirect emissions, which are uh, about 85% of what we're talking about here. So indirect emission, emissions, scope three emissions, or 85% of the entire group's emissions. And here we're speaking about, um, for instance, what's happening down the value chain and um, what emissions occur uh, through the use of the products. So if you drive a car, you may use Shell products, you're emitting CO2, and that would be included. But the court said in relation to these scope three emissions, there's only a best effort obligation. And that's a very, very important point. Again, it may sound like a technicality, but it means that uh, in relation to these 85% or that whatever it may be in the future, uh, it is not a direct obligation, but Shell just has to do kind of its best efforts and taking necessary steps to remove or prevent the risks coming from these uh, emissions that occurred uh, in the value chain. Why is that? You, you may wonder uh, rightfully, why is that the distinction? The court acknowledged that Shell may to some extent have limited flexibility because it has contractual obligations and long-term concessions, as you may imagine, oil and gas um, exploration projects are very long-term. So there may already be um, projects, or for sure there are projects where of investment has already been made, and you cannot just turn it off. I mean, you can, but you run into liability. And to kind of have regard to that, we don't. For a big part of the emissions, we don't have a so-called obligation of result, but Shell just has to do its best to get there, which is, in, in my experience, very unprecedented and not very clear. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to see how it will be enforceable. So they have to implement this immediately, as you said, but then the whole matter is on appeal as well. So do they have to start implementing that in the meantime, even though they're appealing it? Uh, yes, theoretically. Um, theoretically, yes. So I'm not a Dutch qualified attorney, so I'm just speaking out of experience from, from my background. But in theory, yes. Um, and then the question with regard to enforceability and considering that the court didn't impose a specific enforcement or mechanism, as we know from uh, in the US, we know uh, in at least in criminal cases, you may have a specific, very specific um, enforcement mechanism. 
where you have something like a monitor that observes uh, whether you're actually doing what, what the core told you to do. This apparently we don't have in Dutch law. Uh, so what it probably means that the plaintiffs need to observe what's going on and then resort to the courts again once and if they come to the conclusion that Shell uh, fails to comply with the order. Well, really fascinating conversation here, Andreas. Uh, thank you so much again for speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. Andreas Hostley, his article is Milieu Defensi versus Shell, a tipping point in climate change litigation against corporations. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.